On this episode of Hear Tell, we visit gay bars and drag shows. Atlanta's gay bars gave newly minted queers a place where they could mature in ways that were forbidden at home. They could meet same-sex partners, stumble through mating rituals like kissing and dating. They could learn their culture and skewer the outside world through the humor and satire of the city's merging drag scene. We hear a story of the queer South, a story of struggle and celebration, one story out of many, at risk of being lost forever. But the queer experience has relatively little recorded history, in part because of the ravages of the AIDS epidemic. Those who died took their stories with them. My name is Andre Gallant, and I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA and narrative nonfiction program housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Martin Padgett, a 2018 graduate of the MFA program. Marty is a writer, a PhD history candidate, and an author who splits his time between Atlanta, Georgia, and Florida's Gulf Coast. His work has appeared in The Bitter Southerner, The Washington Post, Outside, Men's Health, and many others. He's also a 2019 Lambda Literary Fellow. His first book is A Night at the Sweet Gum Head, Drags, Drugs, Disco, and Atlanta's Gay Revolution, published by Norton in June of 2021. The essay Marty's going to read is titled Underneath the Sweet Gum Tree, which is adapted from his book and originally published by the Oxford American in 2020. The story follows a man named Frank Powell, a prominent architect of Atlanta's gay nightlife beginning in the 1960s. He owned multiple clubs at a time when the city's queer community was establishing Atlanta as the southern pier of New York and San Francisco in terms of vibrancy and activism. This history backgrounds Marty's own experience as a gay man who moved to the South early in his career. In 1997, I lived a double life in Birmingham, Alabama. The essay also plants Frank and Marty's stories firmly in the natural world, a place that bigots have long erased gay people from. Sweet gum trees band together and form dense cliques to survive. They're excellent at casting shade. They're pioneers that reclaim territory left behind by other trees. Before and after Marty reads the essay, we talk about the years of research and self-discovery required to produce a book like his, and how queer places and queer history are being gentrified in Atlanta and elsewhere. There's also talk about metaphors and how to not screw them up. In the essay, you briefly refer to how your life physically intersected with the Sweet Gum Head, the, the titular nightclub. But I'd like to hear how this part of Atlanta history, Southern history, queer history, moved from a, a neighborhood anecdote into a story you wanted to tell and why you think it needed to be told. I really wanted to write something about Atlanta because I felt like I had finally lived here and learned enough about my little corner of the city to be able to put something to paper. And I started writing these rambling uh, essays that tried to do too much. And I kept getting encouragement from our friend and mentor, John T. Edge, to, t- to tighten the focus, to keep going smaller and to, and to find the 
one story, the one person that could lead you through all this to create the through line. And really the thing that resonated with me the most. So as I was peeking over the, the rubble of a couple of essays that were never going to be printed anywhere, I found this detail that, that lingered with me. It was the name of this nightclub, Sweet Gumhead. And I think the first thing that people think of when they hear it is it has to be lewd. It has to be something really strange. And you know, I, I spend half my time now in the Florida Panhandle, and it's a town down here. And it was the hometown of the person who opened the nightclub. Then, then I realized quickly that well, this place existed next door to a place where I had lived on Cheshire Bridge Road. And I never knew about it because it opened and closed in the era before the AIDS epidemic. And you know, we talk a lot in queer history about, of course, about Stonewall, the AIDS epidemic and activism since. And there are a lot of fantastic books about that. And I just felt like there weren't enough about the decade between and you know, some kind of a serious treatment of queer life that centered around happiness. And I really wanted to write something happy. And of course, there, there are lots of things in, in the book that are, that are not, but you know, the, the real thrust of the book is, you know, there was a culture that was developing. And I, I love that, uh, you know, emerging from the shadows to create a visible, viable culture and a community. I just fell in love with the story. Your book is a history built from many smaller stories, but this essay focuses on one person in particular who's from a small town in the Florida panhandle where you live now. What is it about Frank Powell as a character that intrigued you as a writer? Uh, the first detail that I read about Frank, that he had been a student at Bob Jones University. That's not the that's not the trajectory you assume for somebody who, who dressed in drag himself, opened a slew of gay nightclubs, and was pretty much considered the the godfather of the Atlanta gay nightclub scene. Um, how he started out at Bob Jones is simple. Uh, this part of the Florida Panhandle and Southern Alabama, uh, where his family were from, it's it fundamentalism in religion and fundamentalism in political beliefs. They're still here. Um, you can still find churches to cater to that. That belief system, you can still find voters to cater to their belief system. It's uh, it's shocking how little may have changed in that time. Um, but a lot of people don't understand that uh, Bob Jones University actually started in Panama City. And it went through a couple of financial episodes of ruin. And it relocated to Tennessee first. And then it relocated to South Carolina, I think, right after World War II. Yeah, it's, it, there's so much, uh, like I wrote in the essay, there's so much queer history that's just laying around waiting for somebody to point at and say, hey, it's here. And that's all I feel like I've done. Uh, you know, this was, this was here waiting for somebody just to see it again and point it out. And with the context of what we know now that a few decades have passed. Right. And, and it's so typical for uh, someone to come from this kind of rural location and make their way to a city like Atlanta. And it's even become this sort of a trope that you know we have all these stories of people coming out from rural areas to go to the big cities to be to become queer we're still and will be for a long time that that trope will still be accurate and will still be their life story and the way it's imprinted so you know it it there are there are many people who have written books that take opposite points of view that find find people who are just activists from the beginning and there are so many more people now who are queer and and know that from a very young age and act on that as soon as they're politically and culturally aware 
but there are still people who aren't, and I'm one of them. So <laughs> it took me a long time to realize that this was a part of my history. This essay appeared in the summer and fall issue of the Oxford American Magazine as part of an issue dedicated to the concept of place, right? The issue was separated into sections of wood, water, soil, and stone. And this story uh, about a sweet gum tree was included in the wood section. Now, I've known you for a few years, and uh, I've watched your progress on what is now this finished book. And I have to admit, I hadn't considered how components of the natural world were intertwined with a story about a nightclub. And the sweet gum tree itself is a major character in the essay. Um, how did you go about weaving and elements of nature writing into a historical and, you know, somewhat personal story about gay Atlanta. I wanted to know more about the name of the club and that mean, meant learning more about the sweet gum tree itself. So, you know, it turns out that it geographically it, it's, it's range of, of uh, it's geographic range is neatly mapped over to the South. So that was a great detail and made me want to learn more about it. And sweet gum trees have a life cycle that's different from a lot of other trees because they make these prickly seed pods. And the way that they're dispersed and the way that they sort of isolate from other trees is, is, was interesting to me. And then I realized that the shape of the sweet gum tree ball looked like an HIV molecule. I mean, honestly, I had been doing research and just just knowing it from the past and and trying to figure out how to frame this story. Well, it ends with the onset of the AIDS epidemic. And one day I, I simply just looked at an illustration. I thought, oh, yeah. So I, I knew that I knew that there was something here. I actually wrote a few poems that ended up at the top of the sections in the essay as as paragraphs. Uh, just to describe the life cycle of the tree. And there's one that's actually missing out of it. And sweet gum wood or sweet gum sap is used, it's a precursor to DMT. Actually, that did make it in the essay. Um, now that I, I mentioned it. Um, yeah, so it's this psychedelic trippy drug that's mentioned in, in so much of, of gonzo journalism. It's even on Sturgill Simpson's big album, you know, from five years ago, talking about tripping on DMT. And I thought, this really is reverberating through this story. So I need to make this something. Not that I know Atlanta really well, but I was 17 when Frank Powell died. And his Atlanta, the Atlanta of your writing, isn't a place I, I recognize today. Um, in your mind, what does this story have to say about Atlanta or the South more generally and, you know, where this place is going? So queer culture emerged uh, really hesitantly because there was always the punishment of being out. There was always the punishment of being queer. It gathered in Atlanta in a few places and there was a neighborhood of, of bars on Ponce, uh, Ponce Boulevard, those people in Atlanta were a couple down there. And one of those places, Mrs. P's, is actually being reopened as a part of a boutique hotel. And that really kind of neatly sums up Atlanta's trajectory for you. Um, the Cheshire Bridge Road axis had a bunch of the, uh, let's say, bigger nightclubs, and there were more of them. But it was really this um, neighborhood that was gas stations and liquor stores. It was the first place where you could get into Fulton County and buy alcohol if you were living in one of the dry counties out to the east. So it ended up being this transitional neighborhood. And 
when they started building housing after World War II and building the interstate system, it became a, a disused area. So naturally, the queer culture kind of gravitated there because buildings were cheap and they could build their own neighborhood and build some sense of safety. And that's actually what ended up happening. When the first couple of clubs opened, they just drew all these other businesses. So by the end of the 1970s, there were gay bookstores, there were gay newspapers, gay restaurants, gay clubs, and, you know, safety in numbers. Um, it, it just gradually became the area where, you know, some of the people in books would tell me this is the area of town. If you wanted to go out just to run across the street to your apartment while you were still in drag, and get a key or something, you could do it safely there. You could not do that in Buckhead. You could not do that in Marietta. Well, think of today. What does that have to say about um, cities like Atlanta? Well, I mean, there's no city like Atlanta in the South for sure. Um, but where the culture is going today? It, it is so much easier, I think, to be queer and to live in a neighborhood that is not distinctly Queer. And it's to me, it's a little unsettling. I, because of the way and the era in which I identified and I picked a place to live, it felt like, all right, this is the way we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to find other people and be in the, be in the middle of a community that it has its own distinct borders, even if, you know, they're not physical borders, but, you know, you can tell because there are no more gay bars here and there's, you know, there's a sports stadium. My God, what are we going to do with that? Um, <laughs> it, it, it has become so much more diffuse, and that's a that's a thing to applaud. But Atlanta itself has become so huge and so decentralized for communities like that. It's it's one of those things where you kind of embrace it with hesitation, which is probably how most of us feel about gentrification and development. Right. You don't want to go in and destroy the fabric of a community. But at the same time, you want everyone to be able to encounter and, and appreciate other cultures and subcultures and communities. So I don't think anybody has the perfect answer to that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little happy that Cheshire Bridge Road defies gentrification as much as it can. It, there's just, you know, for every, every big apartment building that replaces a strip club, there's still a brand new auto parts store going in. So it's at, I lovingly call it the gutter. It's my gutter. I love it. Do you get the sense that something has been lost or what to you has changed? If I just look at the the themes of of this book, sure, there are things that have been lost because you know, just take drag culture. Drag culture has been transmogrified. It has gone from an art form that depended on cabaret style presentation. You're in a physical space with other people. You're all in on the joke, and you're watching somebody express this creativity in in real space in real time. Well, drag now is an Instagram art that is that reaches its peak on television on seasons that are recorded uh, months in advance and people know the winners. It's the, a lot of the drama has been drained out of it because it's got this ethereal, ethereal presence online and on television that persists. It's not that, you know, evanescent artistic moment. Well, before we hear you read the essay, is there anything else you think we should know? Atlanta has this distinct place in gay culture. And I talk with, you know, f uh, friends who are gay and friends who are studying history. And it it's this third space. It's not San Francisco. It's not New York. 
Um, but it is critical and it's vital to gay history. And I'm glad that we're, we're finally, a lot of people in town are doing things to preserve gay history and to make sure that we're collecting archives for it and just collecting the stories of people who lived here during this big upwelling of, of queer culture in Atlanta. And now here's Marty Paget reading Underneath the Sweet Gum Tree. In 1997, I lived a double life in Birmingham, Alabama. My gym had cruisy nooks and hours, and two women who tended a beautiful garden called my neighborhood home. But I believed that coming out would come with unbearable consequences. Alabama had no work protection for gay people. I knew I could lose my job. So I kept to myself, and each weekend I arrowed east, sometimes at 100 miles an hour, to Atlanta. In Atlanta, I went to my first gay bar, Hoedowns on Cheshire Bridge Road, where good-looking men in cowboy hats whirled in line dance formation. They glanced at me. I stared back at them. I smiled. I belonged. Two decades before, on the same stretch of road, the Dean of Atlanta Gay Nightlife had opened another country and western bar inside an old warehouse and made himself its sheriff. At the county seat, Frank Powell had built a replica of an old Wild West town, complete with wagon wheels, a country store, and a wishing well. Frank didn't just own one nightclub. He owned more than a dozen from the late 1960s until 1996, when he died of a heart attack. He opened quiet drinking bars, fancy fern bars, glamorous lesbian bars, hot disco bars, and seedy hustler bars. He named his most famous nightclub after his hometown in Florida. It was the choke place of the South. It was the sweet gum head. Sweet gum trees, also known by their lyrical scientific name of liquid ambar, have hidden in their trunks a golden essence. They're natural healers. Their leaves can be packed in wounds, and the sap salves skin. The Cherokee chewed sweetgum sap to settle their stomachs. So did the white settlers who drove the Cherokee from their homes. Brutus tea, the bark, is a tonic for nerves. Hardy and strong, sweetgums grow in river bottoms and valley heads across a swath of the United States that maps neatly to the south with the exception of a few finger-like regions of land that intrude into New Jersey and recede from Appalachia. While hundreds of small southern towns draw their names from the native trees, mostly pines and oaks, the sweet gum tree has lent its name to just a few, including a tiny place in the Florida panhandle called Sweet Gum Head. Its namesake trees soar there to more than 100 feet tall along the loamy banks of Hurricane Creek. In this thinly settled but fertile country, the land gave birth to bright yellow corn and deep orange peaches and blue-purple plums, a rainbow that competed with the sweet gum trees' colorful fall leaves. The land also teemed with pine stands, where in the early 1900s, lumbermen would slash virgin pines with wide blades to release the tree's sticky rosin and boil it off into turpentine. Steamboats would churn northward on the Choctawatchee River through earnest belches of soot, to claim that bounty, and turn around and float toward the crystal waters of the Gulf of Mexico. 
but the lumbermen left useless sweet gum trees alone. The tree's bark is rough, like alligator skin, but it hides reddish satin grain wood that warps easily and decays quickly. Sweet gum trees are soft at heart. In 1931, James and Valley Powell welcomed Louis Frank Powell, their fifth child, into a small, tightly knit community at Sweet Gumhead, with a few dozen homes and a mail stop, but no theater, no train station, not even a school. It's not really a town, Frank explained to a reporter from an Atlanta LGBTQ magazine in 1988 at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. He sat at a round table near the end of the bar at the conference room, which he owned. His cheeks were ruddy with drink, and his small brown eyes were sharp with memory. A photo of him, dressed as Betty Davis, hung on a wall nearby. The loosely organized community of Sweet Gumhead was, he recalled, more like a curve in the road. Twenty people, no red light, but it had a grocery store, and I decided to put it on the map. In Sweet Gumhead, Sunday church sing-alongs were one of the few forms of entertainment for young Frank Powell. The faithful would come from miles around to hear preachers whip crowds into a penitent frenzy and to open their hymnals and chime in during day-long, seven-shaped note singing. They could sing along through the easy-to-learn method which suppressed wayward voices by reducing their praise to a limited set of notes. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti each indicated by a distinct geometric shape. At this open-air church, where worshipers were instructed to bring their hymnals and pack a lunch for the long day outdoors, Frank learned that the Bible's exact words were truth, that dancing and drinking were sins, that homosexuality was perversion, that evolution lied about the origins of man, and that segregation honored Christ. He took those lessons to school miles away from home, he took them into his heart when he did his chores on the family's horse farm. He took them into the woods where he sometimes would shirk his chores to wander and hide among the sweet gum trees. Frank was good at hiding. His father and mother never knew that he was gay, and other than his closest sister, no one in the family really did either. Some may have suspected when he enrolled at Bob Jones University in far off South Carolina but homosexuality did not exist at that evangelist college, at least not officially. Frank, for his part, coded himself and played the part of a righteous Christian soldier. He tamed his wavy brown hair, he put on a sober blue blazer, and he offered a thin smile for his freshman class photo. But after a year, he refused to go back to the school. His sister Pate says he never returned because he didn't like it. He had plenty of reasons not to. Bob Jones's form of religion was filled with hate, and it taught Frank that he was sinful and that he was wrong. And rather than return, Frank instead began a journey toward acceptance, like the one that so many queer Southerners would make, a coming out that would take him far from this rural world that he had knew all of his life, to a place with a blank future, one ripe for imprint. He enlisted in the Air Force, and he left Sweet Gumhead good, destined to become a different kind of zealot in a different kind of church.
Sweet gum trees bud late, but they make up for lost time. They set autumn fire to the south. They torch it with orange and red and golden leaves and shower the ground with spiky fruit. The heavily armored sweet gum balls protect their seeds through winter and then break it open to let their offspring take wing. Today, I venture proudly and safely into the straight world, outside the confines of bars and clubs, once designated specifically as gay spaces. I can be free. This wouldn't have happened a generation ago. Within my lifetime, queer behavior has put people into jail, into exile, and in danger. For so many who faced their truth in the decade before Stonewall, often the only safe choice was to leave the small towns where they were shamed and muted and to run away to cities. Though even in Atlanta, a town with well over half a million people in 1960, the year Frank arrived, gay bars were still dangerous and illicit places. When he moved to Atlanta, Frank found the few places where gay men and women could discreetly discover each other, but it was no New York. It wasn't even Kansas City, where Frank had moved after leaving Florida to learn the bar business at a place called the Redhead Lounge, a place that coded its appeal to particular people. A relatively progressive oasis surrounded by ultra-conservative mores, Atlanta didn't yet have a single skyscraper in the early 1960s. It had onerous sodomy laws and a double standard where heterosexuals regularly watched the submarine races at Piedmont Park after dark while queers were harassed for walking there in daylight. Atlanta police once set up a two-way mirror in the men's restrooms at the public library and arrested dozens for sodomy. Authorities would publish names in the paper, punish them with fines, and even send them into exile. Though other medieval rules applied, back then Georgia outlawed any sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Atlanta still bloomed as a gay capital. It had a handful of bars that went discreetly gay after dark and a few risky drag shows. Frank skipped from bartending at Piccolo's Lounge to managing the Joy Lounge, where he hired female impersonators who had to wear two pieces of men's clothing or face arrest for disorderly conduct or for something called masking, a charge which was written into law during the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. When police swooped in, drag queens would run and hide in the Joy Lounge's cold storage. Atlanta's gay bars gave newly minted queers a place where they could mature in ways that were forbidden at home. They could meet same-sex partners, stumble through mating rituals like kissing and dating, expand their minds with LSD and speed and marijuana or plain old alcohol. They could learn their culture and skewer the outside world through the humor and satire of the city's emerging drag scene. When Frank opened his first club, The Cove, he pushed the boundaries of what would be allowed. He brought in a DJ and allowed men to dance together. In 1968, if two women were seen walking down the street arm in arm, well, no one looked twice and thought anything about it, he explained. So why shouldn't two young men be allowed to express affection in the same way? Atlanta's queer bars remained underground places for a community that surfaced at night until riots flared at New York's seedy Stonewall Inn Tavern in 1969. Stonewall electrified the growing queer nation shattering its second-class citizen status with bottles turned into missiles amid broken glass and fire. It channeled a potent cry for liberation, and it transformed it into a movement that spread to Atlanta, 
On August 5, 1969, city police raided a showing of Andy Warhol's Lonesome Cowboys, took pictures of those in attendance, and arrested the manager under local obscenity laws and seized the print of the movie. They cornered one of the lesbian patrons and sneered, Where are your husbands? The queer backlash only needed that nudge to ignite. The queers and hippies and bikers that had formed a loose alliance on the strip gathered and clashed with police near Club Centaur, where drag performer Phyllis Killer often sang in long blonde curls, swinging an 18-foot feather boa as one does, as a jump rope, and throwing lollipops to the audience. When police forced the Centaur to close, gays and lesbians staked out space within Straight Atlanta at the annual Piedmont Park Arts Festival and handed out flyers. They formed a gay liberation front, and some 125 protesters turned up at 7th and Peachtree Streets on June 27, 1971, for what would become Atlanta's first Pride March. Denied a permit, they marched anyway on the sidewalks. After the ACLU told them that they would not help them get a permit because they were not a minority group. While the Gay Liberation Front cried out for public revolution, Frank Powell set his sights on something quieter, but just as radical. Despite the threat of police raids, he wanted to open a show bar, one entirely dedicated to drag. His new club would challenge some of the city's most strictly enforced codes. He did it anyway. In late October 1971, he found the perfect home for it on Treasure Bridge Road in an old soul club. The fury of Stonewall had barely cooled, and now Frank's new nightclub would put drag queens on a stage six nights a week, right under the noses of the Atlanta Police Department. He already had a name for the place. He called it the Sweet Gumhead. Sweet gum trees harbor a little-known talent. The seeds exude a chemical precursor for the psychedelic drug DMT. The so-called spirit molecule inspires colorful hallucinations and life-altering experiences, even in minute doses. Users dub themselves psychonauts. They map uncharted territory in the mind. They explore the borders of self and space and time. On opening night at the Sweet Gum Head, the spotlight flared. Wendy Grape emceed, Levita Allen ripped into Streisand's Hello Dolly, and Allison strutted through the same number in the style of Pearl Bailey. Revelers streamed in through a nearly anonymous entrance into an old dingy supper club space. It was painted black and lined in red carpet, and a single mirror ball spun over the stage. The club sat at the cruisy electric nucleus of 1970s Atlanta, and for a while it was filled by Frank's hearty laugh. It became one of the finest drag showcases in America. British Sterling brought her effortless diction and post-Motown miniskirt look to the gumhead and brought home the crown in the 1971 Miss Gay Atlanta pageant. Frank Powell's good friend Danny Windsor applied his Hollywood expertise in leading his troupe to the stage, Windsor had been a former flying monkey in the movie The Wizard of Oz, 
and he enforced a strict regimen of rehearsals on his crew of drag amateurs until they polished and presented a sensational show presence. It was the first time drag had really been done in this city with real production values, Frank beamed. Frank labored to keep the club quiet and to keep the police at bay, never putting up a sign, posting a watchman to signal when police circled and swung into the club's parking lot. But the sweet gum had, had already given home to rebels and freaks and outsiders of all genders, and the Cheshire Bridge Strip had become a center of queer life. Inside the club, female impersonators perfected the radical art of drag, while activists tried to enlist the night people into the revolution. They tried to raise a crowd to protest during Gay Pride Week in 1972, but Frank rebuffed them. We don't want any of that in here, he growled, and had them thrown out. Reputable gay people don't carry signs in the streets, he said. Rural life and evangelical roots had taught him to hide well. I see these people on the news and they look like creatures out of a weird movie. I would never do that. I have nephews and nieces in this town and I don't want to embarrass them. They know about me. They must. I've opened 13 bars here and everyone's been gay as a goose, but I don't have to flaunt it. I met my future husband just a few months after I moved to Atlanta. I hadn't come out yet. We dated quietly in moments stolen and moments made, in a gray space between old friends and new. We visited a friend in the hospital one night, in the months before protease inhibitors became widely available. Our friend had contracted pneumonia. He lay in a bed in the hospital. Spirit's fine. His prognosis, mixed. When he was admitted, his T-cell count had fallen to two. He dubbed those two T-cells Itsy and Bitsy. They were survivors. As for him, nobody could be sure. This is what being gay is going to be like, I warned myself. As if it were something I could change. I spent a lifetime's worth of panicked, sleepless nights negotiating existence between being true to myself and being frightened that my truth would drive my life away from me, one family member at a time, one T-cell at a time. Choices seemed horribly, asymmetrically unfair, but I chose life anyway. I had run away before, and running away had exhausted me, and it had resolved nothing. I stood fast and brave, and I survived. Soon after I came out, I bought an old Art Deco-style apartment on a cautiously gentrifying stretch of Cheshire Bridge Road. It happened to be next door to a strip club that was housed in a building that had once been home to the Sweet Gum Head. Sweetcomb trees band together and form dense cliques to survive. 
They're excellent at casting shade. They're pioneers that reclaim territory left behind by other trees. With his sweet gum head, Frank pioneered the seedy Cheshire Bridge drag strip. Other club owners joined him along a road which had become a Confederate soldier's farm trail after the Cherokee were removed from it, where American soldiers bought tract homes after World War II on the GI Bill, where the new interstate had carved a path for white flight to relieve its self-imposed anguish over progress. Frank operated under the watchful eye of Atlanta Vice. In October 1972, he received a summons for a grand jury investigating organized crime in Atlanta's nightclubs. When asked about the growing influence of organized crime in the city's bar scene, in particular in the gay nightclubs, Frank professed ignorance. The inquiry fizzled, but in 1974, he sold the cove and the sweet gum head hastily, telling the city's new gay newspaper, The Barb, that he needed a break from the husbands and the bars and the showbiz. He left for a getaway on short notice and disappeared. But he lay dormant only a short time. <laughs> Within a few months, he resurfaced and opened the next of more than a dozen queer clubs that he owned over the next two decades, including the country-themed county seat, where he reigned as the justice of the peace in his fictional gay county. It was just like walking into a little town. It was, it was a little world unto itself, Frank said wistfully. I wish that one were still around. While he started one new club after another, Frank never made himself a stranger at the Sweet Gum Head, which, under new owners, continued to host drag pageants and launch drag careers. It had acquired an edge that left him an outsider as it branched out into more esoteric forms of queer entertainment. The first Southern showing of John Waters' Desperate Living was held there. So was a convincingly cast production of Fortune and Men's Eyes, and even a live sex show by blonde-haired porn stud Jack Wrangler, then just beginning a relationship with jazz muse Margaret Whiting. Atlanta drag legend Diamond Lil called the Sweet Gum Header Tabernacle. The club hosted Sunday shows with drag performers in religious garb, and they'd perform these gospel favorites, even a full-on production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Frank visited often to judge drag pageants and to tipple with managers and to keep all his drag protégés close to him. He sat at a front table near the stage on August 30th, 1981, when the sweet gum had closed to the strains of performers singing United We Stand, just two months after the New York Times had noted a rare and often rapidly fatal form of cancer that had already claimed the lives of eight gay men. While AIDS ravaged the queer community, Frank took refuge at a succession of small bars that he had opened in Atlanta. At Frank Powell's Place, at the Plum Nelly, at Plum Butch, and in 1980 at the Conference Room, which was a holy-looking venue with church pews lining the walls, songbooks from Sunday revivals promising salvation on the bookshelves in the corner. It was his own tabernacle. 
Though he had given up on Bob Jones University and evangelism, he never gave up on religion. He was eventually ordained a minister. Just 15 years after the opening of the Sweet Gumhead, he had come to look down on the Cheshire Bridge Road that he had helped to create. The neighborhood's becoming what the strip on 10th and Peachtree was, he said. Cheap and sleazy and all the other adjectives. He was aware that he had helped father it all, and that it had sprung from his first acts of rebellion. Queer Atlanta could drink together because of him, and they could dance together because of him, and it was widely known that Atlanta visitors could find the best-looking hustlers at Frank's Club. <laughs> That's probably true, he chuckled. Sweet gum trees often stand in place of Dutch elms that have been felled by disease, but the sweet gums have ills of their own. Fungal infections mark dark brown lesions on bark. Dead tissue cankers. Branches fall. A plight called artist's conch signals itself long after it infects the wood. Mushroom-like growths break alligator skin. The sweet gum dies from within. History has given us sagas of world war, of the Wild West, of the suffragist movement, and of the civil rights movement. But the queer experience has relatively little recorded history, in part because of the ravages of the AIDS epidemic. Those who died took their stories with them. Those who survived now struggle to remember what happened in the brief era between Stonewall and the epidemic. The need to tell the stories of that great gay awakening is more urgent today, as those survivors begin to fade, along with the memories of their era of drag, drugs, and disco. It's urgent because assimilation has dulled a distinct dimension of the queer experience. We're being straightwashed, just as an unashamed army of bigots wants to turn back the clock on progress. That progress is fragile and requires regular upkeep and maintenance, and occasionally righteous anger. Frank visited Florida on occasion, but he never went back to live there. A year before I moved to Atlanta, he died of a massive heart attack. His obituary places his death at his house near Ansley Park in Atlanta, but his sister believes he fell ill at one of his bars and died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. He's buried back at home hundreds of miles away from Atlanta, in the family plot at the Church of Christ Cemetery, at the bend of the road in the middle of nowhere in the Florida Panhandle, where he rests by a sweet gum tree a hundred feet tall. The town of Sweet Gumhead still exists, but still doesn't have a train station. There's still no bus stop, and the grocery store is gone. Aside from a church and Ard's Cricket Ranch, the town is hardly there, and it hardly ever was. Though it exists mostly as a hazy recollection of a loose family of farms that dates back less than a century, it serves as a reminder that the queer history of America presents itself everywhere, even in the quiet, empty quarters of the South, where a January fog welcomes me as it clings to the steeple of the Sweet Gumhead Church of Christ. The grayness leaves dew on the granite graves of the Powell family, and it wraps a blanket around the hundreds of sweet gumballs that hang from nearby branches, ready to cast their seed far and wide. 
The trees can barely contain themselves in the winter as their cycle begins anew. Soon they will burst to life in spring, and they will thrive in the strong spotlight of the summer sun. Their star-shaped leaves will trumpet the fall in a riot of color. Crimson reds, glowing golds, vibrant pinks, deep purples, a rainbow. Marty, thanks for bringing that essay to Hear Tell. It's really difficult for me still to read some of the parts of it. As you can tell, it's, um, I got to do my own audiobook and hesitated over the same spots and a couple of others too. And it reminds me that it's still very powerful for me. And I hope that it's you know, powerful for people who want to read it too. I guess that's the marking of a good piece of art if its uh, effect doesn't uh, wane on you over time. Yeah. It really hasn't. I'd like to know your your writer origin story. How did you come to the practice of narrative writing? I always felt like I was going to be some sort of journalist or writer. And I had put my toe in the water for magazine writing jobs. And I always thought that that was going to be the form that it ended up being. So I got an offer to be an editor at Car and Driver Magazine. At the same time, I had an internship offer at Spy Magazine. And the person I spoke with at Spy, it was just hilarious. I knew it was the place, I knew it was a place where I would love to work. But it was in Manhattan and it was unpaid and I could not afford it. You know, it's it's the typical problem with I think they call them fellowships now, where you know you're you're going to do the magazine grunt work and you're not getting paid enough to live in that place. And it's that's the case for reporters and at the same outlets. So I began a career in car writing and transportation journalism. And it became successful and I got kind of sidetracked making it into something and something that I still work for today and and still nurture and for 30 years I've been writing about this I decided though that I wanted to go back to feature writing I had done some really interesting features on my own early in my career and I wasn't getting enough of that so that's when I decided to come to the MFA program it really was it really was the time in my career where I felt like I deserved a reward and I don't think it's not always great to think of education as a reward, but that's me. I, you know, I get to go back to school because I, I can. I'm fortunate to be able to do that. So coming back to long form narrative nonfiction, it was really the only thing I could do. I'm not a fiction writer. I don't have that kind of creativity. I can look at, I can look at episodes and pieces of archival material and I can see the story in them, but I can't come up with that out of my head. Um, and to me, there are so many underreported or unreported stories out in the real world that I could never get to a millionth of the ones that I want to do. And part of, part of my problem as a, as a nonfiction writer is I'm an idea machine. And you only have so many hours in the day to actually do stories and so many dollars in the budget to do them. So I was able to transplant some of that MFA into my daily job. And I did... 
a series of stories on wild horses and how the BLM manages or mismanages the the, the herds of horses that are on federal territory. Um, you know, I got to write stories about Jamie Farr and about the Price is Right and just do long form narrative nonfiction that you think people online might not be into, but 5,000 word stories turn out to be a nice sweet spot for people who have some time to invest in them. So in the, in the moments that you enter this essay, um, you were already working as a writer at that time? I had worked at Car and Driver magazine for five years and I decided to leave because I thought if this is going to be my career, I need to learn some of the other side of the equation. So I went to work for Mercedes Benz while they were building their factory in Alabama and I was a public relations person and I really enjoyed the work experience and all the people that I worked with, it just was kind of politically untenable and I decided to leave. Um, it was you know, corporate infighting, and I had no appetite for that and no interest in participating in that. So I just decided to move to Atlanta. I had been coming there weekends because that's where the gay people were, as far as I thought. I mean, Birmingham, turns out, has a couple of good bars, and I found out about them later through friends years after I had left. And um, But Atlanta, it was this pull. A lot of my college friends had already settled there, and I thought... Let me just go there while I figure out what the next step of my life is going to be, not realizing it was going to be the next big step of my life. Before we head back into the essay, if you don't mind, I'd love to know a little more of the behind the scenes story of publishing this book. Um, for example, you finished uh, the manuscript, the proposal, and um, what did you what did you do next? And how did this story become the book people can now buy? <laughs> Sorry, I have to chuckle to myself because the process was far worse than the writing, you know, just just finding a way to get it published. The the reporting part of it was just unbelievably fulfilling. And if it had gone no further, I'd still have these moments of meeting all these new people that I got to meet and, and befriend along the way. Um I had the most engaging, amazing interview of my life with actor Leslie Jordan, who was one of the first people to answer my request for an interview. And just I turned on the recorder and he started telling me stories and laughing and singing and crying. And I thought, this is how every interview should be. <laughs> After I felt like I had enough to make a book proposal out of it, I, I wrote it. And I had an agent at the time and he wasn't interested and he was going through some health challenges. So I set out to find a new agent and it took me 18 months um, and people were into the idea, but you know, publishing wants to know who's going to buy it on the other end and if that's lucrative enough. And the agenting process was difficult. And I did the thing where I think you're not supposed to do. And I went to AWP, the annual writing conference, and I approached an agent at the end of their panel. And that's my agent, Beth Marche. And just wonderful. She understood what I was trying to do. And we worked on the proposal edits over the summer. She pitched it. And within two weeks, you know, it got accepted. It was so much easier to get from agenting to sold than it was from proposal to agenting. And I guess I'm just persistent beyond beyond usual hopes. Um, I guess I just don't want to let it go. Um, but I went through 64 pitches 
and some honestly felt like drive-bys. Like I got conflicting successive emails from some agents. And I think in, in part because there's such a slew of submissions these days, people really want to write nonfiction. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I hope that the industry will correct in the future is just, you know, just tell me no, don't, don't just not say anything. I think that's, that's a real challenge as a writer when you just don't hear anything because you want to impute everything about what you, about your fears and your concerns about your project. You want to make that true. And it's just not, you know, people just don't have time to read, you know, a hundred proposals in a week. There's no hiding the metaphor in this essay, which I, I really appreciate. Uh, you show and tell, which is, uh, something I appreciate more every day. Um, but as a writer with a journalism background, using extended metaphors terrifies me. I feel like there's this fine line between an extended metaphor that's brilliant or completely heavy-handed. Um, how did you come to see the sweet come as something that could be employed creatively like you did? And how did you go about making it work for you? I, to to go back to what you said, heavy-handedness, yeah, it, it certainly. Um, and I think that I do that specifically so I can engage that and, and say, all right, here's what it would look like if I was just very much on the nose. And that's actually criticism that I've gotten a couple of times for writing it. So I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of want to be on the nose in this case because it's this undeniable thing that you know, it, it has so much power in the natural world. In this case, I decided I had to lean into it more because what I'm trying to say is that queer culture is, is an explicit part of the natural world. And if you think it's some political creation, if you think it's this other reality that's created by some people who happen to have this sexual construct or gender construct, and no, it's, it, you know, I guess it's, it's um, philosophically maybe outdated, but we're just another extension of the natural world, like that plant, that tree. So I really wanted to land on that. And I also, after I had drafted the book and, and this, this part, which was, uh, was part of what I had written as an intermission. I had some very explicit ideas about how I structured the book. And one was I began to realize that I was essentially writing a musical uh, because of all the music that's used in it and how it's used by characters. So I wrote an intermission. And this essentially was the intermission piece to give you the backstory of Atlanta Drag. I also wanted to write more precise sentences and shorter sentences as an almost fairy tale quality because I tend to write long sentences and very complex paragraphs. So let's go in the opposite direction. And I took it to some, some real lengths that, you know, this is an anti-fairy tale to the point of putting the typical fairy tale construction at the end of the book and, and making sure the characters were the opposites of what you might encounter in a modern bodlerized fairy tale. Uh, so I do it for reasons, but I try and like, that, that's not the point of it. It just gives me the tools to be able to write the story that I want to write. I read the essay when it was originally published in 2020. And then as I was listening to your reading of the essay, I had to remind myself that you never met Frank Powell. Tell me about what it took for Frank to become a fully realized person as you write him in your work? I, I hope he's fully realized. One of my major uh, moments of terror 
several of them throughout the book that I've written somebody accurately that is not here to describe themselves or, or to demonstrate, you know, this is who they are, this is what they believe. In Frank's case, I spoke with his sister, who is in her 90s, lives in Buckhead, and was able to tell me some of the early things like how he would run and hide when it was time to do his chores, um, and what their family farm was like, and the fact that his parents probably didn't know and his other siblings probably didn't know that he was gay. So I leaned on that connection and the connection of the people who worked for him over a course of you know 15 years in bar culture and easily a dozen, if, if not two dozen people who worked with him specifically and were friends to him. And then he spoke in his own words. He, since he was so such a pivot point for queer culture, he was interviewed regularly. So in... From 1972, when the paper talked about him and being called before a grand jury, looking into organized crime in nightclubs, to this fantastic profile from the 80s, um, where a picture of Frank in his Betty Davis costume sits over him while he's being interviewed. Um, lots of people had really fond memories about him. And that's... It, it, because not everything has been documented like it would be for you know a, a, a more widely known person. All right, this is what we have. You know, the, this, this, these are the scraps. I'm going to make a quilt out of it. Obviously, I know that history and historical research is incredibly important to you. Um, when writers talk about telling a story, sometimes we talk about leaving things outside the frame in order to tell a more efficient or effective story. But that same question, what to leave out, is often politically motivated when it comes to telling history because, you know, who writes history, often straight white men, get to leave out stories they don't think fits a certain normative narrative. Thinking about your book and uh, and the history it sets down for the record, what do you think about the different ways that question, what to leave out, can be interpreted? It's it's the thing that I really hope that I've gotten right because there, there's just not enough on even the people that I found a lot on to write about. You know, there I, there's some really great stories from the transgender people that I've interviewed and that left you know, a record behind, how, however minimal. And because I wanted this to have sort of an effect of these are the people you would meet in this bar, they had to be represented and they had to be represented in a way that showed their real lives. And, and luckily in a couple of cases, I was able to interview them, talk with them. Um, where it wasn't the case, um, I, I think of this one specific person, uh, Robert Lyon, who performed as British British Sterling, I still have difficulty saying that name. My, my, uh, uh, British was the first mis black Miss Gay Atlanta and didn't have a lot of interview material left behind because the media hadn't evolved to that point um, and was murdered in 1972. Um, I thought it was very important to have Robert as British as a character in here to describe, you know, where the gay community was, but I didn't have interview material, didn't have any first person quotes. I, I had memories from roommates and all, and I did not want the focus to be on the way that his life ended. So we, in the editing process, we just, as much as we have, let's, let's play up, you know, here's, 
here's the success, here's the happiness in the life. And yes, we have to talk about this other thing and we'll get through it and get through it as, as quickly and as compassionately as we can. The third thing that I had to figure out how much to leave in, how much to uh, leave out was me. I, <laughs> it, it took sitting around the table with uh, 11 other nonfiction fellows at Lambda Literary Retreat to get me to begrudgingly acknowledge I at least needed to say what my part in this story is in some way. And I'm so glad that they encouraged me to do it because that led to this framing that is in the book. But it's also, it, it is the primary function of this essay. It's telling you that here I am as a part of queer culture, here are the people and here's there's a timeline of how it, of what came before me. And essentially it's a pilgrimage. I drove a, a year ago, January through, uh, through the Florida panhandle through a part that I would never have a reason to drive through because I just wanted to see where Frank Powell was from. So some of the themes, uh, you know, that we've picked out of this essay are, you know, beyond place but rootlessness and and the setting of roots right and as you were saying a common theme in queer stories is the the leaving home to find oneself to migrate to find a sense of belonging um and just as important as that decision to leave is the uh the decision to find somewhere to stay and you write i had run away before and running away had exhausted me and resolved nothing I stood fast and brave. I survived. And you go on to write that standing strong and brave and dense clicks is how sweet gums survive. And then later in your essay, you write that queer history is far from settled. Do you see this process of leaving and attempting to put down roots um, as something that's ever resolved or is it always in flux? I think it is resolved in its ambiguity that that's the life cycle of queer culture. It plants itself and then it transplants itself and it changes form and it keeps migrating out further, diffusing some, creating its, its own physical presence in other ways. I mean, just look at, like I said earlier, Instagram and TV is where drag culture lives now. It has taken itself out of the queer community Petri dish and put itself into global media petri dish so that everybody can see it it's not only ours now it's everybody's but it's still rooted in us well let's go back to that earlier discussion of of what is lost and and what remains um through the lens of this ambiguity that you were just talking about yeah we've lost uh, sort of the physical construction of an atlanta gay neighborhood there's still the the echo and the framework of it. Um, but if you go to 10th and Piedmont now, there are actual rainbow crosswalks. But the gay bookstore that was there in the 90s and the early 2000s is no longer there. You know, the apartment building across the street has been torn down and rebuilt so that it has restaurants underneath. It's not the uh, old house rehabbed into a gay owned restaurant that it once was. You know, the gay restaurant that's there now, or gay in, in air quotes, is actually corporate owned now. So it's, um, it, 
yeah, it's a little it, like my hometown, uh, Washington, D.C. I go there and I know it, but I don't recognize it. And for me, going through Midtown, going down Cheshire Bridge Road, it's like I will always remember how this goes in, in the left turn lane to get with, you know, without getting run into, you know, it's, I will always know the physical construct of the neighborhood until I don't, until something's torn down and replaced, until something that's not explicitly queer is taking its place. You know, the day that they actually tear the building down where the sweet gum head was, for me, that'll be a big, a big hallmark moment, you know. Right now, the physical locations of this book are still intact. And that's amazing to me. Uh, the diner that was the diner in the book is still there, even though it's empty right now. The Sweet Gum Head is still a nightclub, though, you know, COVID and and it's not explicitly a queer club anymore. It's, uh, um, you know, it, 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 I can't really tell if it's open now or not because of COVID. Um, you know, across the corner where the Terra Movie Theater is, the corner building where the locker room disco and the locker room bathhouse are still there, except it was a pet supermarket. It, it's that weird. It, it, it persists, but you got to know where it persists. Well, of course, uh, progress can be positive, especially in terms of, of safety and security. But would you say that progress is, you know, only a, a, a good thing if there is memory built of what came before? So, yeah, I think we have to be our own institutional memory because we we say progress and maybe that means progress for me, but for a trans kid who's just dealing with the world around them at 18 years old and, you know, Texas and other states want to chip away at their legitimate rights as citizens and humans, there's that's that's the new front. You know, we all have to stand up and say this is not acceptable and as a queer community is an American community. We have to be absolute allies to people who are faced with the situations that you know, maybe a gay man like me was faced with 50 years ago. So this podcast will be live on the same day that your book is officially available in bookstores and uh, shipping through the, uh, the UPSO sphere across the country and across the world. Let's hope. Um, Let's imagine that it's June 2nd and we're in Marty's living room. What are you most excited about that is coming next for you? What I'm excited about happening as of June 2nd is that there's this piece of missing history that's plugged into the equation. And the more pieces we have in the puzzle, the more accurate picture we get. So I hope this is read in tandem with books like, you know, when Peachtree met Sweet Auburn. And also with books like um, Alicia Abbott's Fairyland and Robert Fusler's Tinderbox, you know, there's that that uh, I always I always consider this book a part of that invisible trilogy. That here are some stories from the South about queer culture in the early '70s and how it how it took shape. And I, I want a book that's going to be read for a long time. And I hope that finding this piece of untold untold as of now um, untold until June 1st. I hope that finding that piece of it makes sense to other people. Um, it makes perfect sense in my head, but you know, that's writers always think that they're perfectly clear on the page. <laughs> so beyond that, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I am working on a PhD at Georgia state university in history, and I'm back into the well of Atlanta in the seventies. And I think I'm going to start to read more about the eighties and investigate some, 
continuation pieces of the stories that I've started to write. And I think it's important still to keep going because um, queer culture in the South still was facing these um, intractable problems um, in part because you know, the virus just decimated the people who are the most active in the community. So like I said, I'm, I'm getting ready to read Sarah Schulman's book on ACT UP and um, I, I wanna find the framing that still continues uh, the story in the South. And I think I may have some leads on it. Well, Marty, thank you so much for coming on to Hear Tell and, and, and sharing the story and your insights. And I think a whole lot of us are excited to, to read uh, A Night of the Sweet Gum Head. Thank you so much. This episode featured music by Elvis Herod, D-Boss, Pictures of the Floating World, Chad Crouch, and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about HearTel and the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction Program at the University of Georgia, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. Again, that's bit.ly slash Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at HearTel Podcast on all platforms. HearTel will be back soon with another true story.